Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast in my home is Dr. Matthew Wickman, a professor at BYU. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. And even though he's a doctor and professor, since he's younger than me, since I'm the oldest person on the podcast in my 60s, I'm going to call him Matt during the podcast. But out of respect, I may call him doctor and professor at times. Um, We're going to talk about his new book called Life to the Whole Being, The Spiritual Memoir of a Literary Professor. And um, I'm on Twitter, and about two or three months ago, I just kept getting tweets and retweets about this book, and I thought, I better learn more about this book. And I've sort of known Matthew through Twitter and his work generally, but I got to, um, over the last week or so, read more about this book and and reached out to Matt to ask him to be on the podcast, because I thought it would be helpful for you listeners. We'll link to the book. It's published by BYU Maxwell Institute. We'll link to the Amazon links. You can check it out. Um, But it's a wonderful book, and I'll let Matthew introduce it. Just a little more background. As I mentioned, he's a professor at BYU. He's married. He's a couple kids. Um, He got a BA in English from BYU, um, a master's in English from New York University on Manhattan, I think of Manhattan whenever I think of New York University and a PhD from UCLA, also in English, and um, served a mission in the what I think at the time was the Swiss France Geneva Geneva yep um, France all of France mission about a third of France there were three missions back in France in the day and my mission took a third the lower portion of it and um, that was in the mid eighties yep. so you're like in your mid fifties I am. So you do have a little bit of gray hair. Yeah, yeah more than I want, yes. <laughs> so um, our joint prayer is that this book will help you as a Latter-day Saint. It um, has a broad reach, and I'll let Matt really introduce the book so you can get a feeling for just how the book um, might help you. Sure. Well, the book is titled Life to the Whole Being, uh, and again, subtitled The Spiritual Memoir of a Literature Professor. And I, I maybe I should start with the book's title, Life to the Whole Being. I, I took that from a quote that I love about um, the uh, the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost by Parley P. Pratt, uh, you know, mid-1850s when he wrote this. And here is Pratt's wonderful quote with the book title right at the very end. Uh, Pratt writes, the gift of the Holy Ghost quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections, and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. It tends to health, vigor, animation, and social feeling. It invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual man, it's and woman, I'll add. It strengthens and gives tone to the nerves. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. And I love that, that idea. It's such an expansive way to think about the ways that the Spirit acts on us and can act through us. I've always loved this thought of Parley P. Pratt. So I took the book's title, 
from the very end of it, life to the whole being. It's a, it's a spiritual memoir, this book is, and it really is composed of sort of three different areas of, um, of, of, of work or thought. Uh, one, it's a memoir, so there are a lot of personal experiences in there. A second, it's a book that has uh, some theological and scriptural reflection in there uh, from you know my Latter-day Saint background, um, things that given me a lot of thought uh, over the years past the scripture. And the third area, uh, it has brief discussions of literary texts to help me nuance some of the finer-tuned aspects of spiritual life. Um, uh, and I can get more to that in a moment. Um, so the book kind of weaves together, you know, personal experience, theological reflection, uh, and, and literary discussion. Um, and it's really looking to say that the Spirit uh, can move us in really expansive ways, hence Pratt's quote, life to the whole being. I love that. And I've loved reading some of your personal experiences, the, sort of the practical application of what you're sharing in the book. Um, share with our leaders who you hope reads it and what you hope perhaps changes or I don't know if change is the right word, what you kind of hope it does for readers. That's kind of two questions in there. Yeah. So who, do, who first of all, do I hope will read it? Um, well, I, I think it's a book. I wrote it to be accessible to anybody and everybody, but of course I'm a professor, so that hard, I hardly succeeded. <laughs> okay, so, you know, um, but, but it's meant to be accessible to uh, any kind of interested uh, and informed um, reader. Um, I wrote it primarily to our Latter-day Saint community, though others from other faith traditions, I think would also find something in the book that resonate with them. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's pretty readable. I mean, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, you can tell me, Richard, what you've read, whether you're saying, what in the heck is this guy talking about? But I, I, I tried to make it accessible. What I want people to get from it, though, I am somebody who uh, has been very much uh, moved for years to reflect on uh, the wonder of spiritual life, the wonder of what it means to develop a relationship with God, to try to cultivate that relationship. Um, and I've also found, and I found a couple things to be true. One, uh, you know, God is real and our relationship with him also can be very real. That's the one thing that's true. The other thing though is, you know, God is a lot vaster than we are and has a lot more understanding than we do. And so our understanding of God and our experience of spiritual things can be nuanced, uh, can be, I'll use the word complex, meaning not necessarily complicated, just, just composed of many different things, things that bring us joy, but also some pain. It, you know, trials that teach us who we are, but that come at a cost to us personally. And I want this book to really speak to people who are taken by both the richness, but also the complexity of spiritual life. I want them to find a companion in a book like this one. I love that. I love your gift of vocabulary. Just hearing you speak, it's the first time I've heard you speak. I've read what you've written, but you have a great ability to communicate. Um, I love that. And I think um, one of the things that resonated with me as I've been reading this book is um, just perspective and tools. And um, especially if you're working through a faith crisis or for the first time in your life, dealing with the more complicated aspects of either our church history or current issues and and need sort of maybe a different paradigm or new tools to come in your toolbox. I've felt sometimes the 
tools to help somebody join the church or different tools than to keep somebody in the church. Right. Um, and you provide those. I'm not sure it's directly why you wrote the book, but as I'm reading it through the lens of many in my circle that are trying to find authentic ways to stay in the church and need mature voices with kind of a long road in this space and wonderful sort of perspective through your gifts of literature and your own lived experiences. That's one of the things that I got from the book. I don't know if that's the primary purpose, but it's one of the things that I found very helpful. Oh, I think you're, you're spot on, Richard. I mean, I, I, um, I talk about this a little bit in the preface to the book, actually. Um, maybe I could even read just a little Please. bit of this because it goes right to the point that you were making right there. Um, uh, I see the experience of writing this book has been a blessing. It was surprisingly, a surprisingly long time in coming. I never imagined I would write anything like it. And once the thought took root, I failed repeatedly to bring it to fruition. Mostly, this was because I was sheltering myself in the analytical posture and prose that had become habitual to my work as a scholar. While there's certainly a place for that style of writing, it didn't seem suited to a book rooted primarily in a confession of faith. Then an important thing happened to me in the summer of 2019. I was awarded a fellowship to spend several weeks in Iowa City, working on an academic book about literature and spiritual experience. The rigors of that project freed this one to be a little different, to tell a different kind of story. I was also able to put some emotional distance between myself and my calling in a state presidency in Salt Lake City. I suddenly found myself in two hours of church, not 10. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I know, you know, callings, a lot of people have these busy callings. Uh, and instead of sitting across from members in an official ecclesiastical capacity, I found myself in the company of faithful people from multiple faith traditions with complex questions about religion and for God. Many professed a faith at once beautiful and broken, prompting deeper reflection over situations I was facing in my own life. I began thinking more pointedly about my own trials of faith, what had got me through, which ones were behind me, and the specters that still remained. So I really was writing, you know, exactly to what you were uh, picking up there, Richard. So I'm, thank you for setting me up for that, uh, for that uh, explanation. Keep sharing. I'll just kind of let you keep talking, Matt. <laughs> well, um, that way... <laughs> Let me tell you a bit about, about uh, where this whole thing came from in the first place. So uh, I um, am a scholar. I, my area of specialization traditionally uh, has been Scottish literature of the 18th century and after. I love it. I worked for a while at a Scottish university, taught there, which in I loved. In Aberdeen, Aberdeen, yes, that's right, um, which I just loved. Um, but I, uh, came, I, I was actually working over there, and I came back to BYU full-time because I was offered a position to direct a humanities center, kind of a, be the founding director of a research center that I thought would be kind of a, a really great opportunity. And when I was doing that, my department asked me if I would teach a senior seminar on a topic, any topic. And I said, sure, that sounds great. I'd, they asked me back a year in advance. I had time to plan for it. I thought, I'll work on that old research project I'm working on, I've been writing about. And I thought, well, I've taught that before. I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, I've got something else coming up. I can do something on that. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And suddenly, Richard, I thought, well, wait, if I don't want to do the old research I was working on, and I don't want to work on the new research I was doing, uh -oh. exactly, I thought, well, what do I want to do? I thought, well, I'll talk about something kind of trendy in my field. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that either. And then I thought, well, now what? And I 
I kind of had this personal crisis because in a lot of ways, leaving the job I held in Scotland and coming back to BYU, which is a place I loved, but it was kind of a big midlife, you know, kind of decision. And suddenly I felt myself asking the question, what do I really care about? And I said, well, what if I just asked the question, what do I care about in life? Could I teach to that? And I thought, well, what do I care about? And the answer was pretty quick. It's, well, I care about my relationship with God. I care about my spiritual life. Could I, I don't know, teach a class on literature and spiritual experience? I, mean, I don't know, maybe. And I, how would that even look like? I mean, how would I do that? And so I put together a little draft proposal and sent it to a, a good friend and a mentor uh, of mine, John Tanner, uh, who ended up being, the, he had been the academic vice president at BYU. He'd been my department chair in English. He became the president of BYU Hawaii. Just a wonderful human. I said, John, tell me this is a bad idea. And, and he said, no, it's actually a pretty good idea if you do it the right way. And I said, well, okay. So I sent it to somebody else in the dean's office, a friend. Tell me it's a bad idea. He said, no, I like it. So I sent it to my department office. Tell me it's a bad idea. No, I like it. Anyway, they liked it, but I didn't know what to do. So I spent about a year uh, trying to figure out how to teach this class. The class really went beautifully. I love teaching it. BYU students are amazing. It was a great experience for me. But teaching a class and knowing how to write about spiritual experience, these are different things. Interesting. And I still was not good at writing about it. It was actually a, a student um, who I selected uh, as an RA a few years later who helped me get grounded. And she was saying to me, look, I think there's potential in what you're saying, but if you can't speak more personally, it's not going to communicate to readers, certainly to nobody in my generation. And they were a really important readership for the book. So I had to learn to figure out how to speak to my own experience and write about it in a way that would bring something to other readers, that would sort of strike a chord with other readers, um, uh, but that wouldn't be um, abstract and that wouldn't be you know, too academic. So that's what I tried to do uh, with this book. Love that. I love striking a chord and not abstract. And I recognize that you've done something there's no owner manual to do. Um, <laughs> there was no like course you could look at somewhere else and say, I'll model what I want to do after this. Right. That's really cool. We'll keep, I just want you to keep talking. All right. Well, um, let's go to that no owner's manual thing a little bit. Um, the book's a spiritual memoir. It's a little bit different than an autobiography. I don't tell a full life story in there, um, but there are a lot of life experiences in the book. Um, and there are, there are lots of spiritual autobiographies that exist. You can read them, um, some in, in our Latter-day Saint tradition, but lots of them you know, in other, in other uh, religious traditions, Christian traditions. Um, there are lots of memoirs kind of written by uh, literary people about favorite books and that kind of thing. You can find that kind of thing too. Putting those two things together, you know, spiritual writing and writing about favorite or meaningful books, um, that there wasn't much of a blueprint for. So I began uh, trying to do that. Uh, and, um, and that meant, of course, I'd write about my religious experience and just my spiritual experience. So I'm a, I'm a Latter-day Saint. I consider myself a, a, an active and grateful Latter-day Saint. Um, but, um, I wouldn't say that, that religious life is easy for most of us. And it's not been easy for me. There's a, there's a rigor to religious life. And, um, so I, I began thinking about, uh, the things that have been 
really a blessing to me in my religious life, the things that had been more difficult to me in my religious life. And literature, I found, helped me to be able to finesse the nuances of all of that. Because literature, I thought I write this in the introduction, um, actually it's in the chapter one about literature. Here's what literature means to me in this book. I write that literature represents a special way of experiencing the world, one that often diverges from expected outcomes or lends different color to familiar scenes. It forms an imagined or imaginary alternative to what we think we know, born from an impulse to explore new worlds and ways of being. Simply put, literature reminds us that things might be seen and experienced otherwise. Literature is a revelatory exercise. Through it, we see the world afresh. Literature gives voice what we may perceive, intuit, or hope, but cannot or cannot yet be said fully to know or understand. It is fact in process of formation. As such, literature is a precursor of emergent realities both in the world and in ourselves. It forges new neural pathways, new capacities to think and feel and be. Um, you know, literature is about imagination. It's about our perceptions of things in the world um, that strike us as true, um, but that oftentimes these truths take form in fiction. You know, we tell stories about things. We kind of put our true impressions of the world into these stories about fictitious people or events. But these are ways we have of working out how we think about the world, what we think it means to be human, what we most value, what most draws us, what we're made of, where we come from. And, and, And literature's nuances help me put my finger on what I find richest and also most nuanced about spiritual life and what I find so enriching, but also sometimes difficult about religious life. Um, that's why literature is here in the book. It's, it's, well, I should say, that's why I study literature. That's what drew me to it in the first place. And that's why it's here in a book on, on uh, religious and spiritual experience. I've never um, understood what you've, I've never thought about what you just said. In my whole life, the role of literature to sort of navigate nuance. I'm not even quite sure I can repeat back exactly what you just shared with us, but I love what you're sharing and just this beautiful body of work that I would call literature um, and its ability to navigate the nuances of life and be a bridge and and just a, a source of whatever right vocabulary I would use. I love that. I appreciate that. I, I, you know, you think about the New Testament parables, for example. I mean, think about something as rich as the prodigal son. That's my favorite. It's, a, it's such a glorious parable. I love it. Um, it's more powerful for being a parable than I think it would be if it were just a factual story about a person. Because as parable, it can speak to so many life situations. And, and, and it's, it, it's Christ trying to give expression to a principle, a principle both about uh, forgiveness of those who wander, sometimes forgiveness of those who stay, uh, about coming to a higher perspective of God's ways. And he's saying that's an abstract but true principle, 
Let me give it some life. Let me give it some body. Imagine, if you will, a father who had two sons, right? and so on. Or think about the parable of the sower. You know, um, People go out to sow all the time, but that parable is not based upon a particular sower who sowed one day. It's a larger evocative picture about, um, about principles that you can glean from observing the world around you and putting it in the form of a story. A sower went out to sow and he cast seed and some fell by the wayside and some fell on stony ground and so on and so forth. Literature, I think, functions that way. It, 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 it helps us give expression to what is most deeply human, and, but also things that are things that we hope or believe. They aren't necessarily things that are rooted in scientific fact. But they're felt realities. Um, I love that about literature. It's, it's in some ways, literature is like a scout for truth. It, it kind of thinks around the corner of things before we fully arrive and are able to explain it to ourselves. Before we have a principle, we have a story in mind or an image. Um, literature captures those stories and those images. I love that. I sure love that parable of the prodigal son. Yeah. Um, and the power that that teaches beyond the principles. That's a great example. Yeah, I just love you to keep talking, Matt. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about specific experiences and how you navigated those. Keep talking about the book. It's just your forum to run with it. Okay, well, let me maybe share a couple of passages from the book that would be kind of representative. I'll I'll do one that's kind of a thought and then one that's a story. Great. All right? So, um, here is a thought, and it's a thought about spiritual experience. This is my way of kind of drawing on the Parley P. Pratt sentiment that I, the thought that I shared earlier, but also kind of distilling down some things that I've learned from scholarship on spirituality, you know, my work as a scholar. Spiritual experiences are among life's richest, fullest, profoundest, most exquisitely meaningful, most deeply personal, empowering enlightening and life-giving phenomena. They blend body and mind, soul and circumstance, connecting what and who we presently are to greater, more expansive versions of ourselves. In this way, spiritual experiences give us direction as we gaze toward the future and also help us make sense and meaning of our pasts. By assisting us in communing through what is best in ourselves, with what is good outside ourselves, such experiences guide us to what is sacred, significant, and whole. As such, spiritual experiences foster healing. What is more, they animate our minds, sharpening our powers of discernment, enlivening our perceptions, awakening our memories, heightening our imaginations, and deepening our empathy. They promote thriving at collective as well as individual levels, attuning us more vibrantly to our environments, and inspiring us to greater care for creation. These experiences fill us with hope and purpose. They motivate and console. They direct us to what is truest, best, and most beautiful. They transform our character. Um, that's a passage trying to distill down what spiritual experience is and, and why it's so powerful uh, to me, uh, why I love it so much. I love studying it. I love experiencing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, God is amazing. Uh, and any, any ways that God can touch us in our lives, it's an amazing thing. 
Here now is, an, is, is a story I'll share. This story comes from about the middle part of the book. It's a chapter on gaps, gaps understanding. And, and, and the principle here would be that you know, spiritual experiences often help us fill in gaps in what we don't know because they give us an experience that explains things to us. But sometimes our experiences can cause new gaps. They reveal something that open up new questions we don't have answers. We didn't even know how to ask that question. And now suddenly, you know, we, we, we can. You think about God appearing to Moses in a burning bush and saying, go liberate, you know, the children of Israel. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, not every spiritual experience is simply, you know, reassuring. These things can also terrify and blow our minds open too, right? Well, this is a chapter on that. And this is a chapter, this is a story here from my uh, early teenhood. Uh, that gives expression to, uh, to something I think that's important about spiritual life. It takes about maybe three, four minutes to read. Please. The last time I ever went trick-or-treating, I was 14 and in ninth grade. I don't remember any, any, I don't remember my costume or, quote, costume, close quote. Dressing up wasn't the point. Candy was. My friend's parents drove us to the neighborhood where they used to live, the area was less rural, and the houses were closer together, making for more doors per hour and a maximum sugar haul. They dropped us off at a small shopping center, telling us they'd meet us there at such and such a time. And off we went, dashing up and down streets, getting a few strange looks. We were tall and gangly and no longer cute. No one seemed delighted to see us when they opened the doors. But also, we were getting happily heavy bags. At some point, we decided we'd had enough and began meandering slowly back toward the village center meeting place. Down the street, a gang of four boys was walking in our direction. As they got closer, I could see they were a little older, a little bigger, all dressed like death rockers, all mean looking. They weren't trick or treating, they were on the prowl. And as they approached and sized us up, they began snickering. It's easy to see why. We were no longer little boys, but we weren't yet men like them, at least as I imagine they saw themselves. We must have looked ridiculous. Still, their mockery stung our fragile adolescent egos, and once they were about half a block behind us, my friend, John, turned and yelled at them. It was a nonsense word, a coinage about tackling invented by one of the guys in our freshman football team, someone so much better and stronger and cooler than we were. In our mouths, it was a kind of primal, if pathetic, assertion of dignity. I'd been slinking down the street in shame and hadn't looked behind us when John sounded his barbaric yop. It's a quote from Walt Whitman. Um, I did know that he seemed jittery when he turned back around, but whatever. We were at the corner where the quiet neighborhood street opened onto the multi-lane avenue, and as luck would have it, his parents were just driving past. They saw us and pulled over, saving us the extra half-mile trek to our meeting place. We climbed into the back seat of their car. And when I glanced out the window, I was startled to see the gang of death rockers standing on the corner and glaring, panting, right where we had just been. When John yelled, they must have come running back for us. Had his parents not driven by right at that moment, these older teens would have beaten the living tar out of us. <laughs> I've thought about that incident numerous times over the, over the years. It's a classic story of deliverance, of divine intervention in the teenage mode. What were the odds as parents pulled up right at that moment? A thousand to one? Ten thousand? More? They did not know where we were, nor we them. Cell phones did not exist, and we were earlier than we planned to be. 
Had his parents not been driving in the far right lane, they couldn't have pulled over. Or if they'd come by 30 seconds later or pulled up a couple hundred yards or hundred feet up the, up the street, we'd have been bloody pulped by the time we made it to the car. Time, place, circumstance, all was absolutely, almost unthinkably, miraculously impeccable. But as I reflected on that story, I considered how frequently such miracles do not occur. People are not delivered. I am not delivered. We have a life beaten out of us by illness, unkindness, injustice, poverty, lack of opportunity, discrimination, disability, anxiety, depression, abuse, trauma, rejection, unfair obligations, unmet expectations, unwelcome desires, poor timing, addictive tendencies, character flaws, and so much more. Divine assistance arrives too late, if at all. If John's parents had not shown up, or all the times later in my life when facing some daunting situation or other, no miracle saved me, when I was left to fend for myself, I've scuffled in those circumstances. We all do, I suppose, and sometimes you make it out okay. Just as often, though, we end up bloody, bruised, dazed, taking a beating and then wandering randomly, not really knowing where we are, but quite certain that whatever it was we came here for, it wasn't for this. That's a great passage. You know, it speaks to, you know, I mean, to the reality of wonderful things happening in our lives where we say, wow, God intervened and I was saved. I'm so grateful. But a lot of times, you know, all of us, we accumulate really rough experiences, things that shake us, um, things that cause us to question profoundly what we thought we knew, um, things that change our life trajectory, things that um, change our sense of who we were when we were younger. It just things that really kind of rock us. And for me, spiritual experience can both um, form a kind of a miracle that allows us to explain life's most difficult challenges, help us get us through difficult things. But sometimes certain kinds of experiences, I think, are meant to push us way outside our comfort zones and expose us to real difficulty. And wisdom, I think, consists in learning how to heed the Spirit, to follow God, to draw on that power and strength, even when we find ourselves facing what we never expected or never wanted. It's a great segment. Talk more if you want to about just, um, let's say, okay, Matt, you've got my attention now as a podcast listener because my life is very different than I thought it would be. And I'm experiencing some things that I don't know how to navigate. Um, and it may be challenges with my faith in the church or challenges with the realities of my life, kids that have chosen a different path just all the different things that can come into our life that are kind of rocking. I realize that's a real general comeback to you I'm giving, but, and I know you've had a lot of students probably at BYU opened up to you about really complicated stuff. Just talk to that group of people best way you can. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Maybe I can. And you can read from the book. May I, there's one other experience that, that may help explain. I a love bit that of, you're going to the book. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful because these are things that I've found difficult 
to, um, to put my finger on, which is why I spent time really trying to speak to them in a careful way in the book. I'm happy to go off the cuff too, Richard, um, by all means, but no, this is perfect. Here's a, 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 um, a passage. Take me about maybe, um, three minutes to read this one about, um, about coming off my mission, being back in school at UC Irvine. I'll, I'll preface it by saying my mission was an amazing experience for me. I mean, the experience to go was kind of dramatic in my case. I, I, I always thought I'd go on a mission, not that I really was looking forward to it. I just thought it was my destiny, my fate, you know, and, but I wasn't, you know, kind of against going either, but I, but uh, the Lord was so kind to me um, and opened my mind in so many ways, but really kind of blew my mind open and um, in ways that I wasn't fully prepared to handle uh, when I was young. Answered a lot of questions and opened a lot of questions, put it that way. So this is shortly after my mission and I'm back at UC Irvine. Um, um, uh, I'll put it, I'll start right here. Um, it was in the early throes of this chapter of life that a decisive event occurred. It was a small thing, but I recall it vividly. It was 1988, and I was in the bookstore of the University of California at Irvine, back in school after two plus years as a missionary in France. I was standing in the philosophy section holding a copy of Friedrich Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, one of my professors, a dynamic teacher and an atheist, loved the story of the decline of religious belief. Nietzsche was his favorite author and Zarathustra his favorite book. And here it was in my hands, the summit of human understanding, or so my professor made it seem. I opened the book and read a paragraph or two, then dropped it back on the shelf. The tone was outrageously blasphemous, the subject matter strange, a set of extended anti-Christian parables. But Nietzsche's style was magnetic. I couldn't walk away. The book held me transfixed. Eve before the tree of knowledge, the serpent hissing in the background. So I picked the book back up, opened to a new page, read some more, then put it back down. And so it went for a long time, 30 minutes probably, maybe 45. I eventually walked away, and as I did, I experienced a familiar spiritual feeling. Members of the church sometimes describe it as warm and fuzzy, but it's more nuanced than that. It involves a peculiar kind of heat, like a campfire. For me, at least, the warmth of this fire feels intimate, personal, and yet seems born from someplace outside myself. It is moral and reflective, and therefore cognitive as much as emotional. Usually prompted by present circumstances, this warmth also often carries with it layers of past associations. This occasion reminds me of another occasion, which reminds me of still another, and so on and so forth, such that it almost seems to condense time rendering life's individual moments virtually eternal. The feeling is at once personal and universal, centering and ecstatic, here and everywhere. You lose yourself in it, even as you seem to find yourself through it. By the time I was 21 and standing in the UCI bookstore, I come to associate this feeling with God's Spirit and had learned to do so while living in a crucible far from home. That is what my mission experience had felt like to me, a crucible, a refiner's fire. Walking away from that book was one of the last times the return missionary prevailed over the budding scholar. And the victory, if that is what it was, was short-lived. I returned a few days later and purchased it. 
the feeling that next time was still spiritual, but different. Not warmth and light, exactly, but not confusion or a stupor of thought, either. It was more like a breeze wafting in from a distant canyon, tingling the skin and carrying an enchanting fragrance of dark earth and deep pine. It did not convey divine approval as much as something like a gentle smile and perhaps a slight shrug as if to say, so this is how it is to be. Well, all right. Leaving the bookstore that second time, my backpack heavier by one book, the world seemed to grow much larger and my place in it felt much less defined. So what I'm talking about there you know, is the experience of learning how to understand and negotiate different kinds of spiritual impressions and learning how to, as I mentioned later in the chapter, both to accommodate you know, um, God's spirit and presence and things that confirm what's true and right and good, all of which is very important on the one hand, but also learning how to gain an appreciation for the largeness and vastness of the world, and especially the largeness, the vastness, the depth of God, and um, learning that not every spiritual experience is warm and fuzzy. Uh, They can't all be like that. That a lot of the places where we find ourselves in life uh, won't lend themselves to warm, fuzzy experiences, and that God can be in those moments too, A, if we let him, and B, if we learn how to discern the spirit in the middle of life's complexities. So I, I went to that story when you said what you said, Richard, because I was thinking, you know, yeah, a lot of people who are students at BYU, I was a student when I had that experience, are learning how to navigate their upbringings. Um, their faith, which often is very vibrant and very profound, very real, but learning how to do that in the context either of learning new things they'd never thought about, how do you fit these things together, or learning how to, how to hold on to their faith um, as they see so many around them leaving the church or experiencing complexity, or they experience it on their own. You know, I never anticipated this. What do I do? You know, my, my roommate, my, my sister, left the church. My parents are getting a divorce. My brother is gay. My whatever it may be, I'm gay. Whatever it may be that they're experiencing, how do they negotiate that kind of complexity? Um, and I think that we can, but it's definitely not a beginner's class in spiritual things. That's a graduate class in spiritual things. If we're a graduate class in spiritual things, we need to, to acquire graduate capacity for discernment. That was a terrific segment. I mean, there's a lot of people could do a podcast saying that that book was my journey to no longer believe. Right. Right. And for you, that wasn't the case. Absolutely not. That's right. And do you want to talk more about why for you that wasn't the case? Thank you for asking that question and and for making that observation. Because there's sort of two approaches. One is to never be exposed to anything and sort of live life in a bubble. And I, I recognize to some extent we're able to do that through our missions. And I'm more worried about the years after a mission where it's harder to do that. You just, as you well articulated, you're exposed to more of the world and and may not have the tools to sort of navigate that like you'd have growing up. 
And here you are in the UC Irvine bookstore going back the second time to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. And um, it didn't cause you to leave, to lose faith. No, it didn't. When I, um, my mission um, blessed me in many ways. And I, I want to be quickly, I want to quickly say, we aren't blessed only by missions. My mission is happens to be part of my life experience. I know that a lot of people don't go on missions. True or they come home early from missions, or whatever it may be. And I, 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 everybody True. has a different path. In my case, that mission was formative for me. And um, the thing that though it brought me more than anything else was a sense that God is a gentle and responsive God who can answer prayers in a variety of ways. And I came back with that deep conviction that that was true. And in the years that followed my return home, I describe them as years of faith crisis and not necessarily faith crisis because of things I did not believe. Sometimes it was faith crisis of how do I reconcile complexity? How do I reconcile what I believe with new information or, you know, uh, with complicated lessons I've learned about church history or things I see friends going through that I'm going through? How do I reconcile all this? I never, ever lost that sense that God is a gentle and responsive God who answers prayers. And I had a conviction um, in, in, my, in my hardest times in the, in the decade or two following my mission, um, when I would get very frustrated with the limitations of things I was hearing at church, the ways we had of explaining complexity or kind of putting bows on things as you hear like in a talk or a lesson, you know, and and thinking it's not that simple and don't do that. And, you know, and how would you answer this thing? Right. You know, um, I would pray, um, about my own life and things I was hoping for. And I would sense that God was very kind toward me and my needs. And it actually instilled in me a desire to be generous and open toward God and to listen to what God had to say to me. And I always had the sense that my aggravation with the church was my aggravation, not God's. My frustration with, could be a church leader or a member of my ward or whomever, was my frustration, not God's. Not that God thought they were perfect, far from it. It's that God had this different capacity to handle imperfection. <laughs> you know? God, the perfect being, also had a perfect capacity to handle what was not perfect. And, and I had the sense that if, if my relationship with God meant so much to me, I had to acquire a deeper capacity to handle imperfection. I had to do it. And, and, and that led to some difficult times, but it also kept me in the church. It kept me active. It kept me holding a temple recommend. It made me worthy of working at BYU or, you know, and this kind of thing. And, and eventually a lot of the questions that I had just kind of went away. Some were answered. Some just seemed like the old questions of a young man, you know, what a naive or more naive version of myself would ask. Um, but God's gentleness and responsiveness has been the through line. And it's been a, um, a tutorial for me in how to deal with complexity, how to deal with imperfection. And not that I'm perfect at it because I am not Richard and I still get so frustrated with myself most of all. But it has been the very least, a way for me to deepen those capacities and hold on to my faith, even amid complexity. That's one of the finest segments we've ever done. Oh, 
at least for me personally. You. you took us to God to navigate this road. And I could never use the, you have this gift of language, Matt. I try to repeat back what you say, and I can't do justice to it, but you help me understand God's capacity being perfect for imperfection is part of who God is. And then understanding that gave you more capacity in me to deal with the imperfections that I see. And that builds grace and understanding and maybe peace in this nuanced, difficult space sometimes. Absolutely. That's very well said, Richard. Thank you. Yes, that's what I have experienced. That was terrific. I'm just really moved by that. Um, Because I sense you understand the complexities. So this is not theoretical. This is sort of, you mentioned a couple decades in a faith crisis. And and I like the way you labeled your faith crisis. That's kind of a, a term that a lot of people, some would think is a very negative thing, but some would say that's been a good thing for me as part of my growth that I wouldn't take it back because of the personal growth that's come in my life because of this and my increased capacity to then bless and lift and support others because I sort of have better tools to do that. I agree. That's uh, yeah, Absolutely. I'd love you just to keep sharing what you feel impressed to share. Well, um, let me share a little bit more maybe about how the church has um, kind of blessed me and my, my, my religious experience. You know, I um, am a lifelong member of the church. Um, and I, I have very strong parents who gave a very good example to me and are very, very good people. Um, I, I think that they have had an easier time, um, with their religious journey than I have had in some ways. I mean, not saying that it's been easy for them or anybody. Uh, my dad in particular, uh, has had to do some very difficult things. He's the church's general counsel, uh, and he's got to deal with complexity all the time. He's He's an emeritus general authority, and that's not easy. My mom, who sacrificed so much from my dad, that's not easy. I'm not saying their life experience has been easy, but I think they've handled faith challenges in a way that's more graceful than I have. Um, but I've managed to stay in. One of the chapters in the book, uh, what's it t- titled? Uh, it is um, titled On Religion and the Spiritual Life, or the elegance of clunky things, <laughs> you know. I like the word clunky. Yeah, th- yeah. It applies to me, Richard, certainly, <laughs> and and it applies to a lot of congregations of which I've been a part. And by clunky, see if I can find a passage here that might explain this a little bit. Um, you know, I'm I'm thinking about. Uh, let me see. Okay, um, the church, yeah, has an exemplary and well-intentioned, but mostly lay ministry. You know, um, so especially in the United States, church sermons sometimes feel like, and, and these are not trained theologians. They're people who have, like I do, everyday jobs, you know, um, uh, especially in the United States, church sermons sometimes feel like folk wisdom for upper middle class conservatives. Uh, <laughs> weekly church lessons are often led by amateur teachers with allergies to ambiguity, constrained as they are to arrive at closure at the top of the hour, even when the topics of discussion invite nuance and uncertainty and ask that we sit with them for longer stretches of time. Um, uh, leaders of local congregations are typically dedicated souls whose day jobs consist of workday responsibilities rather than either monastic devotion, the kind of professional training that might provide members with more adequate counseling 
whether practical, psychological, or theological. Uh, then there are church publicity materials, which tend to reflect the polite, uh, sentimental tastes of its American membership, you know, uh, and, you know, um, the legendary industriousness of church members, the sprawl of meetings and activities and camps and firesides and socials and more, always more lending an unwelcome nuance to what it means to be anxiously engaged, you know, all these things. Um, but through this, here is what uh, also is, is, um, uh, I've noticed. At times, it's the ritual facets of my religion. I'm reading here from this chapter. Those awkward sacrament meeting talks, <clears throat> those occasionally uncouth lessons, those callings and assignments nobody wants, that seem to be the only constant things that bring the Spirit into my life. As little as I love certain things about my religion, I never cease to be amazed inspired by the extraordinary flashes of religiously expressed divinity in seemingly ordinary lives. Perhaps these glimmers take the form of a teacher's insight into a, into a gospel principle or a passage of scripture, or perhaps they manifest themselves in people's willingness as organized groups of women and men dispatched by relief societies and priesthood quorums to spend long hours helping a neighbor or serving in the community. Most of these spiritual manifestations are the product of the repetitive force of religious observance, which forges these glimmering traces of the divine into durable Christ-like attributes. I see this process working on and in, working on and in others, and often feel awestruck by the ways it unfolds. The loud hammering of ritual practice yoked to the quiet influence of the Spirit. It's this prospect, this hope that I too might acquire similar attributes that redeems the church's compulsive demands of attention and care and tithing and patience and time. These demands, I find, become the Lord's tools for acting on me, and they do so precisely through the clunkiness I otherwise dislike. The awkwardness of religion is crucial, actually as there is an eloquence that speaks through it, a conversion of a plain sermon or fellow congregant into an instrument or an image of the divine. When these conversions occur, I find myself marveling at the sublime juxtaposition of God on earth, a union associated across Christianity with the singular event of Christ's incarnation, though registered by me here as a common quality of religious experience. This is the spirit at work in human lives, one covenant, ordinance, and practice at a time, time after time, the gift of the Holy Ghost bestowed rhythmically by way of the church. So to me, you know, it's these clunky practices, and I'm plenty clunky myself, <laughs> in, you know, the way I teach and speak, and serve, uh, etc. Um, but those things, how we act as a community on each other in the most inspired ways that um, I find have been really integral also to my spiritual life. So prayer on one end and the things the Lord gives, trying to discern the Lord's presence, even in complicated life moments on the one hand, and then everyday church practice on the other and the ways that uh, those things also act on me to um, you know, polish my character. 
I wrote down as you were going through that passage, maybe God's okay with awkwardness and clunkiness. I think so, actually. I, he'd better be. What else does he have? <laughs> you know, really? I mean, there are people, I should say, there are people, I know people who are extraordinarily elegant in their religious and spiritual lives and how they carry themselves, uh, their grace in listening to others, their ability to handle complexity. Um, but a lot of us, you know, really are pilgrims, um, still learning how to make our way. And I've never felt that God came out in condemnation of me or others. I always feel from God that the primary impulse, the primary disposition is toward mercy and joy and pleasure in the breadth of his creation and in the ways that we all learn little by little um, to become a little more like him. Love that. Just, we've got about 20, we've got about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just more things you'd like to share. Uh, wow. Well, let me, okay. We talk about life's complexity and about the blessing of faith crisis. So, um, you know, much the calling I've held more than any other in my church life has been like, Sunday school teacher, you know, I've been gospel doctrine teacher, I don't know how many times, or instructor in priesthood quorums or whatever. And um, that's been that's been very rich. I love that. And I've never really had that many callings in church leadership, but about a decade ago, I was called into the bishop brick of my ward. I was a counselor to the bishop. And a couple of years later, brought to my great surprise into a state presidency. And this was, you know, an, an experience kind of learning about how the church operates from within, you know, where your mistakes are very public, you know, but also it was really a blessing to me because I could, I, I got to know so many wonderful people who were doing such extraordinary Christian disciple things for each other, families, people in the community, members, non-members, you name it. Uh, and it, it really humbled me. Um, but these were also years, you know, when my daughters were growing and they've, turns out they've not had, I think, you know, straightforward, easy uh, Latter-day Saint experiences. Our younger daughter uh, is an amazing human being, so smart. Um, they both are so smart and articulate and um, so different from each other, but such distinctive qualities. And the younger one you know, an outstanding writer. She's such a good communicator and such depth of person and personality. She also, though at a young age, contracted um, really painful chronic illnesses, um, fibromyalgia, chronic wow. migraines, chronic fatigue, nasty stuff, just nasty. And this really did a number on her um, emotionally, spiritually. And I, I, she really drifted away from God, became angry at God and things she heard at church that didn't strike her as, uh, you know, sort of, um, sort of forgivingly clunky, like I saw them, but really saw them as deeply hurtful, invasive. And I think, you know, and, um, you know, she stepped away from the church. She had her name removed from the records of the church. Uh, she's still uh, outside of the church. My wife and I had to figure out how to learn how to be parents to somebody who we never 
I mean, we never imagined that, you know, for her uh, when she was young, but quite the opposite. She was precociously spiritual as well as intelligent. But to the gifts of faith crisis, let me read from a passage here in uh, the book that talks a little bit about this. It's a, it's a chapter about promises that are kept and other promises, though, that are not kept yet. We don't see them yet, and we have to go through very difficult things. I'm going to read a passage here. It takes me about four minutes to read. Is that okay? It's not too Please, much time. Please, go for it. <clears throat> the odds are that neither of our children should have been born. Elena, our youngest, in particular, was a surprise as she arrived without the infertility treatment we needed for our older child, Hadley. Fittingly, Elena seemed to burst precociously through life, telling elaborate stories at age two, reading at age three, star student from nursery school forward, writing novels and winning contests before she was a teen, precociously spiritual too, an eloquent speaker, young women's class president, caregiver to the marginalized in the school playground, an old soul, a local church leader dubbed her. But the same force of nature applied to her illnesses, which came early and with ferocity. Diagnosed with fibromyalgia when she was 14, accompanied with chronic migraines and fatigue, undergoing blackouts and a series of concussions at 16, experiencing regular seizures and many strokes by 17, and there's more that you can read about. Along the way, she fell into religious despondency, declared she was bisexual, moved in with a girlfriend, and had her name removed from the records of the church. She'd just turned 19. I learned about it from the stake president for whom I'd been serving as counselor for nearly six years, that is, for the duration of Elena's struggles. He called me one evening after dinner, grief straining his voice. Hey, I just received a letter from church headquarters, he said. Carrie, my wife, and I received our daughters as miracles. We gave Hadley the middle name of Grace as a token of her meaning to us. I've always been close with each girl. My prayers for them through their mid-teens were mostly of gratitude, but they were glorious children, smart, beautiful, loving, faithful. As they matured and began facing more complicated emotional landscapes, my prayers for them frequently took the form of cries for inspiration. Happily, inspiration always came readily and provided temporary remedy. Then, as complexity overtook them, particularly as pain engulfed Elena, the prayers evolved yet again this time into fervent pleas for relief or miraculous intervention. When none arrived, my prayers descended into lament. Answers still came, thank heaven, just as they always had. I never felt that God abandoned me or left my family alone to deal with harsh new circumstances. However, I found that these latest answers to prayer increasingly took an old, familiar form. Gentle irony is the phrase I taught, drop on earlier in the book. Gentle irony, a light from a corner of my darkness, a soft voice echoing through deep canyons of the ominous and unknown. I was anguished and God was not. I mourned the prospect of lost futures for my children and God did not. I expressed regret and God would have none of it. Now, I, I, I say that not knowing what God makes of any of us or the future of my kids or me. I, I'm not, 
I don't know all of how that works out, Richard. I, it's just, it's beyond me. Just that all I've ever felt from God as I've sought um, inspiration about my children, um, in particular, has been profound um, appreciation for the extraordinary beings they are, the wonderfully nuanced creations they are, creations of God that they are, and the profoundest sense of hope for them and their futures and the ways they will make their way. Um, I am grateful for what I've been through as a parent, as difficult as it's been in some ways. It's taught me much more about Christ's atonement than I ever fully appreciated before. But I'm also grateful now for those years of faith crisis when I experienced what it felt like not to have the answers that I sought, but to feel that God was still present anyway. That if I would keep myself in a place where God could communicate with me, that I could keep myself, um, um, keep myself hopeful, keep myself growing and learning and becoming something more of what God wanted me to be. And those more youthful experiences now that were so difficult for me in my 20s and 30s sure have helped me in my 50s as a parent. You've moved me to, again, Mike, Matt. I'm so glad you included that very personal story in your book. Um, and your vulnerability to write that. Um, I love how you talk about your daughters. There was no shaming language. There was nothing but just love and respect and seeing their attributes. And even though your youngest daughter, Elena, if I'm saying her name right, has had her name removed from the church, everything you said about her was positive and wonderful. And I, I think there's great grace in that. But your life is different than it would be when these two little kids were born. Yeah, absolutely. And when you went to primary programs and saw them saying, you know, on the stand, I assume that happened. And oh, yeah. They may have pulled faces and sang <laughs> the songs. And Oh, yeah. And I, but I, what you just shared there is, is full of hope for other parents that have kids that have chosen different paths. But the part I won't ever forget is, your feelings about how God feels about your daughters, and even know you have sadness and worry, and I think if the words you use were better than those, God doesn't. And you don't quite know how that all works, but yeah. it gives you peace. That's right. One of those, one of those gaps in my understanding, right? You know, I feel spiritual reassurance and can't exactly explain fully how or why, but it's very real, and it helps me to see a bit more um, my children the way I believe God sees them. Michael Wilcox, so. one of my institute teachers, talks about seeing as God sees, and I think you've helped us do that with the way he sees your daughters and the way we should see our children when difficult things happen, that we worry about what does this mean for eternal family and what does this mean for the future of our family here in mortality. And 
if we really own our religion the way you just owned it and taught it, it should bring us peace. And the atonement can heal our hearts of the pain we justifiably feel when we have people that we love that have chosen different paths. But I sense your daughters see, if I had your daughter, your youngest daughter on the podcast, I would guess she would say, Dad just doesn't see me as somebody who's not in the church. No. no Dad no, no. sees me for all the things I'm doing and all the difficult things I've worked through. And the way you talked about your daughter and her gifts and her contributions, I'm on the playground now with her reaching out to the marginalized. And I just love the way you see you know, that daughter in particular, they talk the most about with both of them, um, not defined by where they are in the church, even though that's something we think about as parents. But I think long-term, it's better for our relationship for our kids to see them, perhaps how God sees them, and be at peace with the things we can't control about their decisions as they age up. Yeah. More thoughts that come to your mind on that subject or anything else? Well, just my, my wife has talked about a, an answer to prayer that she had on this, that um, really that, that, that she, you know, when she was praying about a difficult experience they one of them was having and what to do, she had an answer to prayer that in one sense is obvious, but it struck her with new force. And that is long before they were our children, they were God's children, you know, and we know them pretty well, but I mean, nothing the way that God knows them. We don't, we don't see but a little bit of who they are, whereas God sees so much more, which is why I think God can express things to parents, you know, hope for their children, irrespective of their children's current situations, because um, God just sees a much bigger picture than we see. Um, I think my dad always talks about this, something that Neil A. Maxwell or Maxwell said to him, you know, that we're only in the middle act of a three-act play. We don't know what happened in act one really before we got here to earth. We don't know what happens in act three beyond here. All we see is act two, and act two is really brief. If you try to make the entire, sort of draw the entire meaning, the entire play from a tiny slice of the larger thing, you just aren't seeing clearly. And sometimes trusting God means trusting that God knows who we are, each of us. And it's a blessing to each of us to be able to know each other the way that we do, you know, as, as, as spouses and children and parents and friends and community members and all the ways that we associate with each other. It is a blessing and a privilege to get to know each other as we do. And there's so much more that is so much good to each of us because we are each of us God's children. What advice? I love you, you talking about Elder Maxwell in that three-act play. Talk to parents. What advice do you have for parents who think they've got kids that aren't active in the church and think, this is my fault? Oh, um, This is probably, <laughs> and we do this, maybe moms do it more than dads. They sort of self-reflect. I've done it too. And they've come to this conclusion as they go to church and all the other families have a bunch of active kids that it's really me. I'm nuanced. It's because I'm nuanced and um, maybe talked about these subjects too early. It, I, I'm not putting thoughts in your mind, I hope. And But parents that feel this is actually their fault, they didn't do enough or they should have done something differently. Uh, it's, yeah, great question. I would say that in my case, I'll speak personally. Well. 
couple of things. First of all, my wife is the more expert parent. I mean, mm-hmm. she's the one that's got the real gift for it. I've kind of learned on the job, done the best I could. I've always been a very devoted parent, always um, made mistakes. And when I've prayed to the effect of, oh no, what did I do to, you know, how did I, you know, uh, inspire a decision my daughter made to do this or that? Is that my fault? I felt something um, in answer to prayer here, Richard, on a few occasions where the Lord's basically communicated to me, look, Matt, you know, stop making this about you. (laughs) This is not about you. You know, uh, stop being so maudlin, stop being so self-obsessed. If you want inspiration from me, ask me what you can do to help your daughter. There, I'll give you inspiration. If you want this to be all about you, you know, just talk away, but you're not going to get much in response. So I guess the thing I would say primarily to parents is really, really seek the Lord's inspiration. And if you're doing that, you'll probably find the Lord can give us insight into things we could do better as parents, but that primarily it's about how to gain greater insight into who our children are and how we can help them and how to recognize that this is God's plan of salvation, not our own. We hopefully help him a little bit in small ways where we can, um, but that we're here to help God do his work. And one of the main ways we do that is as parents, as imperfect as we are. Um, We've got time for another segment. What would you like to be your last segment? Oh, I'd probably just just say this. I would probably just say um, that I hope this book that I've written um, can speak to people uh, who have a, a, a love or just a curiosity about God and spiritual things who want to understand those things better than they do. We all do, you know, I I certainly do. I hope they find in a book like this um, a a book that's written not just with ready-made answers, but that writes into the questions and that um, wants to be a companion in sitting with the subtler, more nuanced, in some ways, more complex aspects of spiritual life. Um, And it's also written, and I want it to be a companion for those people. But I also, I love how a colleague of mine who read this book described this book. She's extremely insightful. um, And I wish I'd had her words. She said, it's a complex little book with a very clear set of faith commitments. And my convictions here, you know, are that the Lord finds ways to reward our faith. And sometimes those rewards are very dramatic. And I recount a couple of those in the book. Often they're very subtle. And I recount some of those in the book for me. Um, But the Lord rewards our faith. He rewards sincere questioning. Um, He rewards um, even admissions. Uh, uncertainty, crisis, uh, hope for things that we don't have, Um, but that there is uh, really that light breaks in through all of our brokenness and that um, God answers prayers uh, in ways great and small. And he answers in ways that reassure and that also help us to grow. 
and that there is a rigor to the ways that, that the Lord helps us grow. Um, and I've tried to write in such a way that um, those um, seeking some companionship for complexity can find it, and those wanting reassurance that, that, um, that answers are to be had and that goodness awaits it can also be reassured uh, that those things also are real. They have certainly have been in my life, Richard. I feel very, very blessed. Uh, through any trial or challenge I've had, I feel very, very, very blessed, including by this podcast. Thank you very much. Dr. Professor Matthew Wickman, this was just terrific. Honestly, we've done a lot of podcasts, and this is unusually good podcast for me personally, perhaps also our listeners feel the same way. Some of the things I wrote down as we were concluding was one of the themes is you continue to pray. Yes. And you continue to get insights um, through God, through prayer. That's most of your life story is a lot of the complexity is you go to prayer and God helps you understand. And that's a great principle that you've applied. I just have loved everything you've said. I think our joint prayer from this podcast, listeners, is this helps you. I feel peace and hope. You have a calming voice. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I just, my impression is you've blessed so many people in the different circles you're in. An academic circle, a teaching circle, that may be somewhat the same. Your official church service over the years, just the unofficial work you do that perhaps no one knows about. There's a lot of listeners that are doing the same thing, but you have a gift, and I'm so grateful for your voice in our community. Grateful to have had you on the podcast. And listeners, we will link to the Amazon link to Matthew's book, and thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for your generosity, Richard. I appreciate it. And we'll sign off, um, listeners, from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.